Proverbs 14 and verse 12. Familiar verse to us. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs is full of statements like this. This is one that's had a lot of meaning to us and you've heard quite often because we are uh, decision-making people, aren't we? Uh, You're in control. You're deciding what's right and what's wrong. You're deciding the path you're going to follow. Uh, this uh, interesting passage in that it says the end thereof is the ways of death. You may know there's now an Old Testament version of uh, called uh, the message, and now it's in the Old Testament. It says in the, instead, but its end leads to hell. But its end leads to hell. So the emphasis given on really the intent of these decisions. But you and I probably, hopefully, say we base our decisions on what seems best. In other words, we'll weigh the evidence, we'll weigh the options, we'll say, well, this seems good, this seems the path that I need to go on. In fact, if I ask you this morning if you make good decisions, probably you would say yes. Uh, depends on what may have just happened in the last week or two in your life or some decisions you may have just made. But this morning we're asking, is the best choice always that apparent for us? Is it always something readily seen? Or is there sometimes some things that are unseen, even some things that God may be preparing for us or having preparation? Because sometimes we find out later of something we didn't know. We say, well, if I'd only known that, if I'd only know this was going to happen, then my decision would have been completely different. Sometimes what seems wrong is actually right. Uh, I'll try to think of a couple of examples. You know, uh, there's people sometimes who do not need your help. It seems right at times to always grant someone's wishes for help, does it not? You know, as a Christian, we have that uh, uh, within us. We have that spirit within us to help those. But sometimes the best thing is actually not to help someone. You may know the phrase we talk about empowering someone who actually the answer needs to be no to them. And it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like that's the best decision, but that's really what needs to be done. You know, I even think about food. You know, the the best thing seems to be hamburgers, cheese enchiladas, uh, tacos. But it's not, is it? Uh, The best thing is Brussels sprouts. The best thing is uh, whatever, boiled okra. The worst, you know. I didn't know oatmeal was right until I married Laura. And she... (laughs) And she told me, yes, Mark, that's the right thing to do for breakfast. Sometimes what seems wrong is actually right. But some decisions we make have little consequences. You know, you make the wrong turn on a street. You're completely thinking that's the way you should go. But you find out later that it's not. However, you make the mistake of getting on the wrong plane or the wrong boat, then that's a little more problem for you. I don't think the proverb writer, though, is talking about these kind of decisions. He's talking about the decisions that really have consequences in our life in the direction that we're going to take. The proverb writer is talking about the spiritual decisions that you're making this morning and whether you're considering all the possibilities that can be had as you consider that. Sometimes 
in Scripture, we see examples of people. In uh, 1 Samuel, Saul has made a decision after being told to go to destroy the, all the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the enemies of the Israelites from early on even after leaving Egypt. You may know the story. Samuel tells him to go destroy everything, basically everything that breathes, every animal, every person. And Saul comes back not only with King Agag, who likely is what was done back then to kind of show off the one that, the person that you've conquered and here's the king, but he also brings back the choicest animals and he gives some justification to that and that's because he thinks these good animals, these best animals are what I can give or what the people can give and sacrifice. But the words that Samuel says to Saul are this, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? He's basically asking, Saul, what led you to make this choice? What led you to make this decision? And he even counters it in saying, you know, you've disobeyed by this decision that you made. But Saul's reply is, I did not disobey the voice of the Lord. In other words, he had so justified in his mind that that was the right thing to do that he didn't even sense the fact that what he'd done was unpleasing. Samuel again asked, why did you do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And basically Saul says, I did what seemed right to me, the best thing to do. But it also applies to our logic of thinking the best decision or the best evidence to us is not to do something. You see, Samuel overstepped. He thought the best decision was for me to do something I hadn't been asked to do. That seemed logical to him. But when you go in Exodus, of course, to the scenario of the burning bush with Moses, Moses is reasoning in his mind everything that he doesn't, <laughs> that he thinks is wrong with following God. In fact, Moses kind of uh, builds Moses up. He kind of fools him a little bit. He kind of says, you know, I've heard the voice of the Israelites and I'm ready to act. In fact, I even have a place prepared for the Israelites. And I can imagine Moses is pretty fired up about what he's hearing from that message in the burning bush. But then he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now what does Moses begin to do? He's basically saying, Lord, that is not a good decision. I'm not the person for that. In fact, he even says, Who am I? And the Lord says, Well, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. And he says, well, who are you? <laughs> and the Lord says, well, I, I am that I am. And then he says, well, they're not going to believe me. Uh, and he says, well, I'll do miracles with you. And then he says, well, that's still not a good decision. Lord, I'm not a good speaker. And then, of course, he says, well, I'll have Aaron come along with you and do the speaking. And then eventually Moses says, Lord, send someone else. Someone else. So all the evidence and reasoning from Moses told Moses that I'm not the best one for this mission. But then we sometimes question our decisions after we've already made a commitment. As I said, we look back on it and we ask, did I really do the right thing? Did I buy the right house? Did I buy the right car? And unfortunately, even scenarios when someone gets into a marriage and wonders, have I done the right thing? Because our minds start to work on us and we ask, was this the best course of action? 
The reading that Derek read for us is so evident of this. With all God had done for the Israelites, the Egyptians had actually insisted they leave. They'd actually given them uh, gold and silver and things they could take with them on their journey, just get out of our country. And they'd seen all the miracles that God had done. They get to the Red Sea, but then they look back and see the cloud of dust of Pharaoh's army, all the chariots, all the army of Moses. And then they make these accusations to Moses. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Moses, what kind of decision have you made to take us to this place? And then they say, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Now, there's nowhere in Scripture where that where we have a record of them saying that, but they said, didn't we tell you to leave us alone? No, they never said that. But they were so panicked, so afraid of this condition that they'd found themselves in here with Pharaoh. So it seems like they'd made the wrong decisions. And the things sometimes we see tell us the same thing. But you move to the New Testament, and there's some interesting scenarios as well. I think we have this passage from Luke chapter 5 of an encounter that Peter has with Jesus. And it says, get it into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Now what's going through Peter's mind here? We know Peter, right? In his mind, he's thinking, hey, you know, I'm the fisherman here. I've been out all night. I know how to catch fish. And I know this decision to go back out into the water again is probably not right, but like he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets and we know what happened next. And it says, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And we know Peter falls at Jesus' feet. Didn't seem like the best thing to Peter at the time, but it made quite a difference. You know, when you think of the Apostle Paul even and the kind of person that he was when he would, uh, decision-making about his mission work, he would often go from one place to the next. What a man of action that he was. But in Acts chapter 16, he's uh, apparently deciding to go to Asia and Bithynia, and the Lord says, no, that's not the place I need you to go. I need you to go as he gets the vision from the man in Macedonia to come over and help them. And because of that, today in our Bibles, we're reading from Philippians. We're reading from First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Corinthians, all because Paul was redirected and he'd been told the decision you have is not the one to make. But even interesting to me as well is Matthew chapter 25 uh, where the one Two-talent and five-talent man is described there for us. You know, the one-talent man was not criticized at the beginning. The, the master gave the talents away, and he gave someone a, one talent. And I'm not sure what that was based on, but there was nothing in the Scripture to say there was anything wrong with this man, uh, the fact that he was given that. But it's what he did with that one talent, the things he decided to do based on the fact he'd been given that one talent. And you may know he, he buried it in the ground. He said he knew his master was a hard man. So there was just something to that that uh, in his mind said, that's the best thing for me to do is not to pursue anymore 
and at least have this one talent when he comes back. But in verse 25, it says he was also afraid. And that's what he was criticized for. He was afraid to take action. But looking at those Bible examples, let's look at us this morning. What's guiding your decisions? Is it only what you can see? Is it only what you can see? And probably admittedly, most of us would say yes. We can, we can only go on what we can see, but Scripture to the Christian, I think, tells us something different. You're making all kinds of decisions this morning. Uh, you're making personal decisions. You're deciding, as we said, things like cars and houses, uh, how to raise your children. Uh, your, your children, your teenagers especially, are making very important decisions about friends, about behavior. And so these are things that we work through. Even in marriages, you're deciding changes maybe that you need to make. You know, maybe you need to talk less and listen more. Maybe you're deciding whether to change a job. But you're making more important decisions than that. Those are what I might call earthly, worldly decisions. This morning... All of you have made and are continuing to make what I call spiritual decisions, the kind of decisions that Proverbs 14, 12 is talking about. And some of you are not making the decisions that you should be. Some of you may be at church this morning, and it's really the first time in a long while And thank you for making the decision to be here. And let me encourage you to be here more often. Some of you, as kind of alluded to with our reconnect, are maybe taking that a step further. Uh, Can I be involved a little bit more in ministry? And you're weighing that almost like a, a miniature burning bush moment where the Lord is saying, you know, there's something I have for you. And you're deciding all the reasons, or you're determining all the reasons why, you know, that's not all that important for me. Let, let me ask, uh, who in here might have someone in the toddler class? Anybody take their child to the toddler class here at 9.30? Okay, okay, the Lowry's. And that is, uh, who? Lennon, okay. You, all of you look in your bulletin this morning, if you would. Turn to the page where we're looking for teachers, Okay. I got some bad news for Lennon, okay? I don't know if I've ever seen this before, but uh, where do we need someone on Sunday morning? Toddlers. Where do we need someone Sunday night? Toddlers. Where do we need someone Wednesday night? Toddlers. Aaron? Sorry, brother. We don't have anyone who wants to or thinks they can teach Lennon next quarter. But you know what? If I ask you this morning, would you teach the toddlers next week, I mean next quarter, I imagine a lot of us would say, I can't do that. But you know what? You are now perfect for that job. 
Because that's exactly what God is doing with Moses at the burning bush. Moses, you don't think you can do this at all, but you're perfect for it. You can do it. And that's the kind of person God's looking for. And that's the illustration we're trying to make for us this morning. We make these decisions based on our past or based on what we think we can or cannot do. And God, like was read in that scripture, would you just be still and watch and see what the Lord can do? It's amazing, I think, when we look at Scripture and see the passages where God is trying to encourage us to do more. In fact, we will pray, will we not? We will pray, Lord, help me to be a better Christian. Help me to uh, be the kind of person you want me to be. And we'll walk away from that prayer and go right back to the, the lifestyle and the decisions that we've continued to make. And, and we're, we're not waiting or not looking for God to make that change within our life. And it's if the prayer has not has made little difference in our lives. But you know, even more than that, as a step for spiritual decisions this morning, there are people this morning who need to make decisions about, again, what Proverbs 14 and 12 is talking about. There are people in this life, in this assembly, perhaps, who need to change the way they're living. They actually need to repent of the sin that they're involved in and need to confess that to Christ and pray to God. Even this morning, there may be those who have still not made the decision to be immersed into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We've had about eight or ten baptisms just in the last six weeks. Praise God for that. But for some reason, people still hesitate. In fact, look at this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. Paul talks about the reception that the gospel has in the mind of people. He says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We preach a message about someone who died on a cross. For us, the equivalent of that would be, we're preaching a message about a man who died in the electric chair, who was sentenced to the electric chair. If in the Middle Ages we say, this is a message about a Savior who went to the guillotine. And so... To the Jews, the fact that you're telling me the Messiah, the one who came to restore Israel or save Israel, is the, uh, someone who died just like a common thief. And the Gentiles hear the story for the first time and they think, that's, that's, that's almost funny to hear that, that you're, you're pushing a religion where the message is about someone who died a death sentence. And so it was a stumbling block to Jews. They couldn't move to that. And again, the story itself was too much for Gentiles sometimes to take in. But he says, but to those who are called, basically Paul is saying, to those who accept the message, to those who decide this is the truth, it makes sense to me, in spite of what the story says, I will follow Jesus, both Jews and Greeks regardless. Christ becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But this church also uh, makes doctrinal decisions. You may know this, but our elders have guidelines for shepherding the church here. They're biblical guidelines. They're things they've spent a lot of time in, in developing the, for a unified way to look at shepherding the church here. You know, Don this morning when he talked about communion, he talked about being commanded on the first day of the week to have communion and, and uh, to make an offering. 
if it were just up to us, in fact, in some churches, it is, in a sense, up to them. But would it, it makes sense to us to take communion every Sunday. To some, it must not because they don't. And you think, well, what are they basing their decision on? To some, it would make sense to have uh, some women participating in our worship. Uh, to some, it would make sense to have more than just John up here leading singing. It might be some instrumental accompaniment to go along with that. In fact, it's, it's rare to sing the way that we do. And why, why is that the case? It's because people are making decisions on what seems right to them instead of looking to the Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Because the wisdom of this world is folly with God. The way that people think in this world, the way that people come to their own decisions of this world is folly with God. And sometimes I wonder, do I fall into that same trap? How can I illustrate that this morning? Well, 12 years ago in a sermon, I used an illustration that I'm going to use again this morning about a decision that sometimes are not apparent to us. The right thing to do is not apparent. So uh, let's see. Blake, you were 10 years old then maybe. And I'm going to see if you remember this illustration. Okay. Because it made an impact, I think. It's how to escape an Aconda attack, okay? So, and here's the thing, unfortunately, that I've learned in 12 years. This story is not true. <laughs> I found it on the Internet 12 years ago. It said it was in the Peace Corps manual, along with how to make a fire, how to uh, build an igloo, and all this other stuff. And it was how to escape an Anaconda attack. Well, let's work through this, Okay. Let's say you're in the jungles of the Amazon. Here's the first thing to do. Go ahead, put it up. Do not run. The anaconda is faster than you. Now, and I'm not saying this is not true. I'm just saying maybe it's never been put into practice. Uh, but the, I do know that I found out that the anaconda is not as fast as you, so that's one thing. Okay, number two. Lie flat on the ground. Do not panic. The anaconda will begin to climb all over your body. Be calm. Now, how many thought of that one, okay? And you're supposed to put your feet as close together as you can and, and put your head down where you're just as straight where the anaconda thinks you're really not breathing. Otherwise, it will try to squeeze you to death. Okay, number three. After the anaconda has examined you, it will begin to swallow you beginning with your feet. Be calm, okay? Number four. Permit the anaconda to swallow your feet and ankles. Be calm. You know, it, it'll, it's got that jaw, those jaws that'll disconnect and it'll get bigger and just start coming up your feet and ankles. Okay, number five. The anaconda will suck your feet into its body. Be still. This will take a long time. <laughs> just let it, let, you know, let it go. Let it go. Okay, here's the thing. Number six. When the anaconda has begun to fully swallow your legs, calmly remove your knife. Kill the anaconda, okay? There we go. How many of you thought that was the right course of action? And course number seven, be sure you have your knife. 
Okay. This morning, many of you are being overrun by decisions and indecision. And it's climbing all over us, and it's even trying to swallow us. But know that God is always with us. Sometimes we don't sense His presence in our lives because we are so busy with our own decisions and our own solutions and therefore our own plans and actions. And that's why it often takes a crisis to come face to face with God. In order to experience the living God, we often need an experience that calls for this living God to participate in our lives or to be there for us. And I think you really know when you're in a crisis, when you actually sometimes reach a point of powerlessness, even in your own words. You're in a crisis when you feel helpless and hopeless and powerless. You don't feel like you have the ability to change things. You can't reverse them or correct them. But brothers and sisters, in Scripture, that is where God does His best work. Did you know that God often brings us to a place of helplessness? Because He wants us to let go and let Him participate. But again, I think as we've admitted, that scenario is often difficult for us to do. That's why many people don't get to witness the impossible things that God is able to do. His plan sometimes seems too easy or actually too unusual to trust. So we hold on to the issue with our own hands and we try to figure out a way to solve it ourselves. There's a passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoiada, let's... uh, Okay, whatever Christ, I didn't realize I had that slide, sorry. Uh, in First Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoiada is king of Judah. And again, they're like Israel often is, uh, they're surrounded by enemies. But there's someone God raises up called Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah. And here's what he says. He says, listen all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. And here's what he says. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Just stand back and watch and see what God can do. In my office, there's a uh, something I have framed, a quote, if you've been in there since I've been in McDermott Road a quote by A.W. Tozer. And here's what it says. It says, God is looking for people through whom He can do the impossible. What a pity we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. I challenge you to look at the decisions you're making and and see am I leaving God out of these decisions that I'm making and not trusting Him for what are the unseen things that He can continue to do. John's got an invitation song we're going to sing this morning. If there's someone this morning who would like to have us pray for you, pray in behalf of you and what God is doing in your life or there may be decisions you're making that you need the church to 
to pray about or to talk with you about. Our elders will be also in a room in the back to talk to you if you'd like. And again this morning, if your decision is to be baptized and follow Christ as many have done, we certainly would welcome that opportunity this morning. Let's stand together and sing.